We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Philippians chapter 3. We're going through a, uh, a sermon series this summer. We're calling it Greatest Hits. I'm not sure if these are our greatest sermons ever. You can decide on that, but I hope you've enjoyed them thus far. I certainly have. And this is one of my favorite passages here this morning. So if you will, please stand. Let us show reverence to God's Word. And I'm going to read Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to go through verse 11. Philippians 3.1 Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But... Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's Word for God's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for powerful passages like this that quite honestly can preach themselves. Lord, we thank You for the work that has been done not only through Your righteous life, Lord Jesus, but through Your death on the cross and Your confident and powerful resurrection. Holy Spirit, I pray here and now as we sit underneath Your Word, would You teach us? Would You speak to us? Would You illuminate it? And not only that, would it change our lives and how we think and how we live and most importantly, how we give You glory. Thanks for the time here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Okay, I have something that I want to share with you guys this morning. Kind of went back and forth on if I should do it, because it's kind of private. It's a little intimate. Kind of being vulnerable, throwing myself out here, but I've got it for you. You ready? Here it is. This is my resume. This is not only my resume, it's my resume from 13 years ago in 2009 when I graduated from Colorado State University. You can see under education there, I had a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration, concentration in Marketing, and I spent hours on this document pulling together, what are my qualifications? How can I get a job in entry-level marketing or sales? And I'll tell you what. I think it's pretty sweet. 
I mean, this professional profile, look at that, first bullet point, strong interpersonal and communication skills developed through relationship building. What employer wouldn't want that? As far as my experience goes, principal and co-founder of Media Whisper, that was my own company. We were doing social media marketing before social media marketing was a thing. Next up, Merchandiser, the Scotts Company. This is when I would go to Home Depot and Lowe's for the Scotts Company, miracle Grow, and I'd make sure all their products looked really good. Yep, you're tracking with me. Next one, Server Spaghetti Warehouse. I want you to notice the third bullet point there. Insured risk management by making sure patrons met minimum requirements for alcohol consumption. I checked their IDs, made sure they were 21. Right? I'm telling you, I spent hours on this thing. Leadership and volunteer, I'm a Christian, I volunteered with a ministry, I'm a hockey player, who wouldn't want to hire a hockey player? And I also coached hockey, young adults. I mean, I've got the experience, guys. Well, the funny thing is, is that the next job that I got after I compiled this resume, it wasn't in sales or in marketing, it was actually in ministry. And I went to people and I said, hey, can you help me pay my salary as I raise support for this ministry job? And so these hours that I spent on this great resume, it was all for nothing. Well, resumes, they're a funny thing, right? In our culture, people, there's a science to them. You have to make sure that there's lots of white space on them, the right font. Maybe you could print it on some thicker cardstock or spray it with perfume. You just want to make sure that it sticks out, right? But at the end of the day, what is a resume communicating? What is the purpose of a resume? Well, I'm not the first one to come up with this, but a resume is something to show you that you're qualified, that the work that you have, the experience, the training, the education that you have is sufficient, is enough. And I would say that it's a, a validating performance record. And we do this all the time in our culture, validating performance records. Just think of like your credit score. Or if you want to pursue higher education, that's your transcript, where it shows not only the classes that you took, but also the grades that you got on them. And just to be fair, getting educated, having experience, being trained, these things are good. And for the hiring managers, they look for these things. And if you've met the qualifications, if your performance record is valid enough, then the door opens for an interview and maybe you get hired. And again, these things are good. They're not bad, except for when we take the same line of thinking into our relationship with God. How do we come before God? Well, many of us know the right answers. And we live in such a way that we're not trying to mark up a validating performance record before God. But are we? Do we do this? There's good news for you and there's good news for me. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see that it's not so much how we perform for God that is significant, but rather it is knowing Christ and being found in Him 
that is of ultimate worth, ultimate value. It's not our validating performance record, but as we're going to see, it's Christ's validating performance record. Paul discovered that. He wrote to the Philippian church about it. And I believe God wants to speak to us about this idea here this morning. And this is one of my favorite passages because when I discovered the truths that are in this passage, it changed my life. And here's the deal. I was already a Christian. (laughs) So we're going to dive in here. I've got three points for us. Paul's warning. Oh, I've got four points for us. Who knew? (laughs) Paul's warning. Paul's worth. Paul's righteousness. And fourth surprise, our righteousness. Okay? So let's dive in here. Paul's warning. I'm going to give us a little bit of background information as we go through this point here. So let's jump in. Philippians 3, starting in verse 1, Paul says, Finally, brothers! It's almost like, is this a conclusion, Paul? This is like halfway through your letter and you're starting a conclusion? And everybody jokes like, Paul, he's so verbose. He just goes on and on and on and on. And he does. Um, But he's not concluding here. He's shifting his thought. And he says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. This is a command that he's giving them. It's a command that he's giving the Philippian church to rejoice in the Lord, who they are in Christ and what he has done for them. Paul founded this church by preaching the gospel. It was the first church plant in all of Europe. And if you remember, he went there and he met Lydia. She comes to faith. Then Paul and Silas, they get arrested and they get thrown in jail and they share the gospel with this Philippian jailer. And he comes to faith. And all of his household. And the gospel begins to spread. Not just in conversion growth, but this, this church begins to mature in the gospel. And now Paul is writing back to them. This Greek-speaking Gentile church. They're not Jewish. And he's writing to them to rejoice that they are the people of God. Included. And he also gives them this warning. He says, watch out. Watch out. Because he's warning them that their joy is not robbed and that their faith is not destroyed. And how does that happen? It's by religious performance. He says there, in verse 2, look out. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What does that mean? Well, Paul's referring to a specific group of people. He's not referring to puppy dogs. It's referring to a specific group of people who tended to follow him after he planted churches. And they were of Jewish origin. And they would say, yeah, that Jesus stuff, it's good. But you also need this. And don't forget about that. And oh, if you really want to be committed to God, you got to do this. Well, they were teaching that you had to keep Jewish law. Dietary restriction, festivals, Sabbath days, denying yourself of certain things, and oh, men, you had to be circumcised. That's what the people of God do. They circumcise the men. 
That's how we did it as babies. So, man, if you really want to show that you're set apart, that you're cut off from the rest of the world, got to get the chop. Mutilate, mutilate the flesh. That's what he's talking about here. Paul says, watch out for them. These are scavengers. They will rob you of your joy. They will destroy you of your faith because they're consumed with religious performance. And then in verse 3, Paul fires back. He says, we are the circumcision. What he's saying there is we are the true people of God who have been set apart from the foundation of the world. Not just in their ethnicity, but who God has called them to be. We are the circumcision and we put no confidence in the flesh. We worship by the Spirit of God who dwells within us. And we boast or we glory in Christ Jesus. Put no confidence in the flesh. He says this three times in our passage. And Paul's confidence is not in his religious performance. It's not in his bodily exertion. It's not in what he is doing for the Lord Jesus that he puts his confidence in. And so his warning here to stay away from not only these teachers, but more specifically the way of thinking and the way of living. And I think this way of thinking is so prevalent in our day. This kind of performance validating. And it's not just outside the church, but honestly, it's, it's in the church as well. And we come to faith in Jesus. We know that we are forgiven freely for it is by grace you have been saved. And that is true. And that is awesome. God does no longer count our sins against us. Yes and amen. We sing about that. However, we tend to forget that it's not just by His grace that we have gotten into the Christian life, but it is by His grace that we continue on in the Christian life. And that it is not dependent on our performance. It's not dependent on us mustering up enough energy to obey Him. Now, obedience is important. Obedience is important in the Christian life. And in order to progress in the Christian life, we need obedience. God wants us to not only know Him through His Word, but to submit ourselves, to come underneath it and obey Him. But obedience is not the thing that keeps you in relationship with God. We're going to revisit this idea of obedience and how to make progress at the tail end of our sermon this morning. But right now, Paul, he's warning the Philippians, and I would say he's warning us to watch out for this line of thinking, this performance-orientedness. And that leads me to my second point here, Paul's worth. And Paul shares his validating performance record here, his resume. And even though he doesn't put any confidence in the flesh, he certainly could. And he lists off seven qualifications here. He says that he's circumcised on the eighth day, that he's followed the Mosaic law even from when he was born. He says that he's an Israelite, and more than that, he's a Benjamite. So he can trace his lineage, his heritage, his ethnicity all the way back to one of the 12 tribes of Israel. For if you remember, when the kingdom split, 
Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, stayed with Judah. They were the conservatives of their day. More than that, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew the Jewish customs, the Jewish culture, and he lived them out. All the way to the point that he was a Pharisee. Now, we often think the Pharisees are the bad guys, and kind of are, but in Paul's day, and in Jesus' day, they were the religious elite. They were the, they were the pastors. They were the guys who always got it right. And Paul, he says in Galatians, that he was such a hardcore Pharisee that he was even surpassing all of his teachers. So, he'd probably put that he was summa cum laude on his resume. Paul says, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. He went around and found threats to the Jewish faith about this Jewish man who had claims that he rose from the dead and he would snuff it out. And he would snuff out anyone who believed in it. He killed Christians. Chief of sinners, he says in 1 Timothy, because of this. And finally, as to righteousness under the law, he says that he's blameless. That he's faultless. Now you might be thinking to yourself, he says in other letters, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, Paul did sin and he did disobey God's law. But he made sure when he did that, that he had the necessary reparations to cover or atone for his sin when he did that. That's how Paul could say that he was blameless according to the law. And that's a pretty impressive resume. This guy is the man. He not only has the ethnicity and the heritage, he has the education. He has the training. And he also has the zeal. He has the fervor. He, he took great confidence in who he was and what he had done until it came all crashing down. Until it came all crashing down on that day that he met Jesus. And if you remember in Acts chapter 9, the Damascus Road, this bright light shines, blinds Paul. He was known as Saul then. And Jesus speaks to him and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you remember what he said? He said, Who are you, Lord? Paul shares that experience here with us in verse 7. He says, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In order that I may gain Christ. Paul found his worth, and that's in knowing Jesus. His Lord, His Master, who is a good Master. And I, I underline counted or count here because it's almost like He's an accountant. He has these financial terms of gains and losses. And being the business nerd that I am, I, I put together some columns for us. And before Jesus, this is all of Paul's gains, his religious performance. And the losses, the liability, was Jesus. He hated them. He wanted nothing to do with them. 
He didn't see how he was significant. And then Jesus met him. And then Jesus changed him. And all of a sudden, Jesus is the only gain. The only gain. And whatever he had before, whatever he was doing before, in fact, everything that he has, all things, loss. Loss. Jesus said in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Paul knew this. Paul knew that his religious performance is now a loss. And Jesus is his gain. His only gain. The supreme value. Because he's a good and gracious Lord and Master. And this is chiefly shown, I think, in our passage this morning by this little word, rubbish. Rubbish. Now, this word, I think, is veiled in our translation of the ESV, and rightly so. It's a bit vulgar. Some of your translations in your hands might have the word dung there, or excrement might be a more accurate translation. And that's basically what it is. It's a pile of crap. <laughs> it's a big load of crap. And that's how Paul views his religious deeds prior to coming to Christ. But not only prior to coming to Christ, but after coming to Christ too. Crap. It's crap. It's a big old pile of crap. And I was thinking about this this week as I was changing my son Cortland's diaper. He's 12 months. I walk into his bedroom and immediately get punched in the face by the stench. It's one of those. And I see, oh, a blowout. Not just through his clothes, but also into his crib. I said, okay, I'm going to show Michelle. I'm a husband of the year. Dad of the year right here. So I not only change his dirty diaper, I change his sheets, and I change his clothes, I even give him a bath, and I do the laundry. And can you imagine if I went downstairs to Michelle with that soiled diaper and said, here you go. What do you think she'd do? She'd get that out of my face. That stinks. And ladies and gentlemen, that's how God views our religious deeds. That's how God views us and what we do for Him when we try to establish our own righteousness apart from Christ. And I think that's what Paul is communicating here. He doesn't, God isn't looking for our religious performance. God is looking for us to know His Son. That Jesus is the treasure. That Jesus is the surpassing worth. That Jesus and who He is, what He has done, not only with His sinless life, but His death on the cross for you and for me. He is of highest treasure, par excellence. Paul discovered this. It's Jesus. It's no longer our religious performance. It's no longer our validating performance resume or record. 
Jesus is the missing link. Jesus has performed on our behalf. And it just begs the question, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you resting in Jesus? Is He your highest treasure? Or are you looking to other things? Are you looking to rubbish to present to God? There's a book out there. It's called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And I read it about a decade ago. And it showed me how religious I really was. And how I had goals in my life. And I wanted to improve. And I wanted to get better. I wanted to be the husband that God has called me to be. I wanted to be the father. I wanted to be the minister. I wanted to be the friend. I wanted to be the athlete. I wanted to have success in academics. And these things are good. But I think when we trust in them ourselves, it's rubbish. It's as if we're presenting this soiled diaper to God. Look what I've done for you, God. Do you see all this? And it's dangerous. And I think this idea of religious performance is so pervasive. And Paul doubles down on it with this idea of righteousness. And if you look with me at verse 9, this is our third point this morning, Paul's righteousness. He says, and be found in Him. Paul wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And I love this here. I love this here. If you notice in our passage this morning, righteousness is mentioned three times. Three times. And it's the exact same Greek word, but it's used differently. What Paul is talking about here in verse 9 is fundamentally different than what he's talking about back up in verse 6. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And let me just ask you a question before I define righteousness for you. How would you define righteousness? How would you explain it to somebody? What it is? How would you explain it to a nine-year-old? I had to do that this week with Solomon to make sure that I understood it. <laughs> righteousness under the law. Well, this type of righteousness mentioned here in verse 6 has to do with our living. Right living. Other passages that talk about this might be like Matthew 6.1 where Jesus gives a warning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. It's behavior-driven righteousness. It's from following the law. I would simply call this right living. Now look with me at verse 9 again. And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. What Paul's talking about here is utterly different than the previous righteousness in verse 6. It's not based on your obedience to the law. It's not based on your morality. It's not based on your performance. And in fact, it's not based on you at all. It's based on God. The righteousness from God. Other passages speak to this righteousness of God. Romans 3, verse 22. He says, Now the righteousness of God has been made known 
apart from the law. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. I simply define this type of righteousness as right standing. Right standing. And it's imputed to us. It's given to us. It's imparted to us. It's declared to us. It is a standing before God. It's from God. And understanding this is of utmost importance, I would say, in the Christian life. Discovering this not only changed my life, but it changed the history of the church in the Protestant Reformation. And it begs the question, do you understand this type of righteousness? Or more importantly, do you have this type of righteousness? Do you have this standing before God? You can today. Oh yes, you can. You see from our passage here that it comes through faith. In fact, it depends on faith. God gives this righteousness freely, clearly, once and for all, for those who put their faith in Jesus. And so have you done that today? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Or are you putting your faith in your religious performance? Are you putting your faith in your morality, in what you are doing for God? Today can be the day of salvation for you. And it's by faith. So right living versus right standing. This word righteousness is used 86 times in the New Testament. So how do you know the difference? And I would say, well, good Bible study methods. <laughs> Understanding the context, wrestling with the text, and asking the simple question, is this righteousness talking about right living or behavior oriented, or is it talking about right standing? Just on the way to church, I asked my seven-year-old son, Jude, how do you know God is happy with you? It's kind of a deep question on a five-minute drive on the way to church. But I've been thinking about this all week. And Jude said, well, Dad, when we love the things that God loves and we hate the things that God hates, I said, well, buddy, that's, that's good, but that's not how God is happy with us. That's not how God is pleased with us. He said, huh. Was it by obeying Him? I said, no, buddy. It's not by obeying Him. And he said, well, what is it? I said, Jude. And I looked at him. I said, Jude, it's by believing in who He is. It's by believing in Him sending Jesus to obey the law on our behalf. He said, I believe in that. <laughs> That's it? I said, That's it, buddy. That's it. That's the good news of the gospel, folks. That is the good news of what we believe in, not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but all throughout the Christian life. But before we move on, I just want to highlight this idea of how foreign this righteousness of God is. You see, we tend to find our own righteousness in a million different areas. And if you don't think you do this, buckle up. Because you have a soiled diaper and you present it to God. Gross. I almost brought one in. Be thankful I didn't. This is a grave danger for us. 
The first one that I'd like to highlight has to do with our theology. We are known as a church here in town that has good theology, deep theology. You know, we're complementarian, or we know our soteriology, and even some of us have our eschatology figured out. But you know what? God isn't pleased with you because you know those things. God isn't pleased with you because you have this depth of knowledge and you believe in it especially compared to those who disagree with you. Theological righteousness is what we call this. How about in how we raise our children? How we raise our family? And in comparison to other people? You know, we homeschool our kids. So God must really be pleased with us. Our kids can actually sit through church quietly. (laughs) Actually, we don't homeschool our kids. We send our kids to public school and we engage the lost. God is really pleased with us on this. Family righteousness. How about politics? You know, if you really loved God, you'd vote for this guy. Or if you really loved God, you'd vote for this gal. I don't understand how anybody who votes for this person or stands for this platform can love God. God must really be pleased with us. This is America. Political righteousness. Guys, this stuff is so prevalent. Financial righteousness. I stay out of debt. I have all this money that I give to the church. I'm very generous. God is pleased. Schedule righteousness. My schedule is so packed. Man, I have this calendar app and it's just boom, 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 boom. I am effective for the kingdom of God. Or, on the other side, actually, I'm flexible and I don't pack my schedule full. I have margin for mission. I can engage the lost, unlike those ultra-schedule folks. Job righteousness, I work hard, God's going to reward me. Mercy righteousness, I care for the least of these. God is happy with me. And I wish these other Christians in my life group would care for them as well. The list can go on and on and on. And you know what we call this, folks? We call this self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. And it is a poison to the Christian life because it robs us of our joy. And it prevents deep fellowship with God because we're constantly looking at ourselves and what we are doing. It's legalism. It's performance. It's morality. One commentator doubled down on this heinous sin of self-righteousness. He says, we know that it's wrong to worship immorality like everybody out in the world seems to be doing. We find it harder to see that it's just as wrong to worship morality like everybody in the church seems to be doing. You see, in our bones, we know that God hates unrighteous bad works. We're not nearly so convinced that He he hates self-righteous good works just as much, if not more. In fact, the most dangerous thing that can happen to you is that you become proud of your obedience. Self-righteousness is an attempt to establish our own righteousness apart from the righteousness of God that He's given to us in Christ. God hates it because He loves us. So where is it for you? Maybe it's something that I've mentioned this morning. Or maybe you need to think about it a little bit more. Here's my diagnostic for you. 
If you were to imagine God's face looking down upon you right now, what would His face look like? What would His countenance toward you be? And if He's disappointed, or maybe He's got a stern face and crinkled eyebrows, a question for you then is, what would it take for God to be smiling down upon you? What would it take for Him to be happy with you, as I asked Jude this morning on the way to church? However you answer that question, that's probably where your self-righteousness would be found. And my challenge for you is to find somebody that you know and share that, confess that, and forsake that. Turn from it, repent, run from it. It's poison, it'll kill you. It'll kill your faith. Share that with someone that you know. That's why community is so important. That's why being in deep relationship with people, not just coming in here on a Sunday morning, raising your hands, maybe putting something in the offering box, and then going on with your life. Or maybe coming to life group and going through the motions. No, are there people in your life that know your self-righteous deeds? Share it with your spouse. Share it with your friend. Share it with someone in your life group. Share it with someone in your journey group. Bring these things to the light. And then, share with yourself and the people that you're talking to that your righteousness is not dependent on your performance. God's face is shining down upon you because your righteousness is not your own. It's been given to you through your faith in Christ. Amen? Amen. He's smiling on you. Yes. That's good news. So before we shut it down this morning, to take one from Paul, finally, in conclusion, I've got five more pages of notes here. Just kidding. Whew, tough crowd. You must be feeling convicted of your self-righteousness. Now you know how I've been feeling all week. You might be asking yourself, if God is pleased with me because of Christ's righteousness and not my own, then how do I live? What's the purpose of obedience in the Christian life? Well, I'm glad you asked. He mentions this idea in verses 10 and 11. He's talking about the power of the resurrection, being freed from sin, becoming like Him in His death, sharing in suffering. These things are one and of the same. They might look different in what he's describing here, but it's simply the process of sanctification. It's the lifelong progress of becoming more like Jesus. It's progressive, but there's lots of ups and downs. But as we have these ups and downs of Christian life and as we strive for obedience, not to present to God, but to understand that Christ has been obedient on our behalf, we rest in His grace. We come back to the Gospel. We grow in the Gospel. Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 1. This church that he hasn't even met. He says that the gospel has come to them and that it is continually growing. Not spreading, but growing in them. In their hearts. Growing in the gospel. And at the resurrection from the dead. Our destination. Where we're headed. Glory. We're going to stand before God. And we're not going to present to Him a soiled diaper. We're going to say to Him, nothing in my hand I cling, but simply to the cross. 
Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. And he's going to say, with a huge smile and a great big fat hug, well done, my good and faithful servant. You may enter the joy of your master. This is the fuel of the Christian life, ladies and gentlemen. We get these things not from moralism, not from our performance, but understanding that God's love is a gift, not dependent on our obedience time and time and time again throughout the Christian life. And we will only make progress in our obedience to God when our hearts realize that God's love is not dependent on our obedience. I'll say that again. We will only make progress in our obedience to God when our hearts realize that God's love is not dependent on our obedience. So it begs the question, do you understand this? This is the very fuel to know God. This is the very fuel to love Him because He loved us first. And He said, if you love Me, you will obey Me. Not to get things from God, but because we have everything already in Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, this is so different from every other world philosophy. And that makes it truly, distinctly Christian. It's not based on our performance. And this world needs this news. This world needs this truth. The church needs this truth time and time again. And those around you need it. Because those around us who don't know Jesus, they think we come here on Sunday mornings to please God. To earn some sort of favor to God. But it's passages like this in Philippians chapter 3 that we see that our righteousness, our approval, our acceptance, our standing before God is not based on anything that we've done. It's not based on volunteering, helping on the playground. It's not based on coming to life group, giving money. It's not based on being here and raising your hands. I hope you raise your hands because you know that Christ is everything. He's the surpassing worth. He's of ultimate value and treasure. Jesus became the surpassing worth for Paul. He's the surpassing worth for me, and I pray He's the surpassing worth for you. Not just today, but every day until we attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great passage. This passage that has pierced my heart time and time and time again. Father, we thank you that you are a holy God. That you do not allow sinful people in your presence. But Lord, we have relationship with you not based on anything that is our own, but because of the righteousness that You have given to us. Lord, I pray that You would help us to unpack this truth here this week. That You would help us to see where we are trusting in our own righteousness. And Lord, I pray that we would confess it and forsake it and run to You. Rest in You. And rely on You, Lord Jesus, day in and day out. From this forth, from this day forth until we see you with that smile on your face and that pronouncement of well done, good and faithful service, servant because of our union with Jesus. We pray it all in his name. Amen.